I would like to start this morning by showing you a video. I think it's a funny video. You may think it's funny. Yeah, you're going to think it's funny. Check out this video. That's a problem. This is a problem. Who, me? Yeah. Why? Because you're the one that knocks. You're the one that never wants to go to bed. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, you're a crazy baby. No, you're a crazy baby. You won't, you'll never learn a lesson. You'll never learn a lesson if I clean it up every time. Yeah. I don't think so. You're going to bed. Yes, you are. Yeah, I'll tell you, you will tell me. You can't have the wine. You're not allowed to have the wine. I don't care how long your day was. That's a problem. That's you some problem. Who, me? Yeah. Why? Because you're the one that knocks. You're the one that never wants to go to bed. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. That's good, isn't it? I yeah, it's just, there's just something about that video. Those kids, I mean, you're just like, yes. Like, I love the gibberish. I love the gibberish. It's like, it's like those kids know exactly what they're saying. And not only that, like half the parents know what the kid's saying to them. It's like, it's just this, like this craziness and this silliness. And these kids think they know best. They think that they really know better than their parents. And they're not afraid to tell them. And you know, as I'm watching that video, I wonder to myself, is that the way God looks at me, the way my heavenly father looks at me sometimes? Like, you know, I, like when I'm doing, I'm making my choices. I know what I think is best, and it's like I put my hand in that cookie jar because I want that cookie. And God says, no, it's not good for you to take that cookie. And I say, no, 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 no. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm experiencing. You're just getting in my way because I want that cookie. And it's just like I'm speaking gibberish because I think I know what's best. Do you ever think that way? Do you ever think that you know what's best? You ever think like that God looks down at you and kind of thinks to himself, boy, yeah, I, I hear what he's saying. I can't, I, I can understand it. But it's this, just this silliness and this bit of crazy and he hears your gibberish and, but, but you just think you know best. You feel like that ever? Really, like down deep inside, do you think you know best? The Israelites sure did. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. It's found on page 595 in the Bible that the church provides. I'd encourage you to grab it. We're going to kind of be going through Isaiah chapter 48 together this morning. Isaiah 48 is broken up into two sections. In the first section, actually, I want to let you know, each section starts out with some bad news. 
I just want to be upfront with you. Each section starts out with some bad news. In the first section, the Lord calls out the condition of the people of Israel and accuses them of not being who they claim to be. Then in the second section, God tells Israel how they could have benefited if only they had just obeyed him. And as we read it, it's going to be clear that this is some pretty bad news for Israel. But this morning, it's my prayer that we wouldn't only look at this as a message that God had for Israel so many years ago, but that we'd, we'd listen this morning to what God has to say to us, to what God has to say to you, and to what God has to say to me. And it's my prayer that we will stop and we'll actually listen for the warning or the wake-up call that is for us in this chapter. I want to be honest. It might be a bit painful. And you're going to have a tendency as I'm talking, you're going to have a tendency to kind of turn me off, to kind of shut down, kind of close up and not listen to what God has to say to us this morning. And my encouragement is please don't. Please listen to what God has to say to you this morning. I want you to know I had to listen this past week to what God had to say to me as I prepared this message. So together, instead of passing off these words as ancient words to an ancient people, let's listen for what God has to say to us this morning. We need to honestly consider if our plans and our comments are really just a bunch of gibberish. So first, let's start by looking at the condition of the people. Israel Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 1. Look at, listen to what it says. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. In these first two verses, the Lord calls out Israel for not being who they claim to be. They call themselves citizens of the holy city. They claim that God is with them because they are the true residents of Jerusalem, the Lord's city. Look at further, look what they claim. They claim to lean on the Lord, thinking that he will come through for them. But in reality, this is all just fake. They were claiming an affiliation with God, but were not living by faith in God. They were claiming to worship the Lord, but look what it says. It was not done in truth or righteousness. Their claims were hypocritical. Their participation in worship, in praise, in taking oaths, in confessing beliefs was not done in truth. It looked good on the outside, but they weren't sincere. They didn't hold fast to the beliefs that God had laid down for them unless it was convenient for them, unless it was beneficial for them. And then look further, it says they were not righteous. That means that they weren't obedient to what God had said. They weren't listening to what God wanted them to do. So the charge here, the charge that God makes here is insincerity and hypocrisy. And then he goes and he provides us some evidence for his charge. 
The evidence of the charge is presented in verses three through eight. Israel resisted God's mighty acts and instruction, both past and present. That's the former things of verse three and the new things of verse six. Look at verse three. The former things were the events that God predicted long ago. This is likely a reference to the things that God had done in the past that he had predicted and done in the past, including the people's exodus from slavery in Egypt. He's saying all of the former things that I predicted and promised came to pass. And then he takes it even further in verse six. He tells them that there are new things. There's new things that he's going to do for them. That's likely a reference to a, a new exodus, a new exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Now, God doesn't say all of this. He doesn't make these predictions and remind them of the predictions he's making to show off. He gives them this prophecy, this looking forward to the future, telling them what's going to happen for a reason. He's highlighting Israel's resistance to the truth. Look at verse four. For I knew how stubborn you were, your neck muscles were iron, your forehead was bronze. Now, any of you who think this might be a compliment, it's not a compliment. Nobody should want a bronze forehead. What God is saying is the people were unwilling to bend. They were not willing to be obedient. In some, they were hard-headed and they were obstinate. The prophecy was necessary because the people were stubborn and they were hard-headed. Look at verse 5. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about, my wooden image and my metal God ordained them. God had to tell them what was going to happen, what he was going to cause to happen. Otherwise, Although they claimed to worship God, they would have given credit to their wooden images and to their metal gods. They would have given credit to their idols. And the interesting thing is they were the ones that actually made the idols. So in essence, they would have been taking credit themselves for all that God had done. For anything that good that would have happened to them, they would have said, or they would have thought, that's because of all the things that I did. So God lays out this prophecy for them. It's so bad. Look what he says in verse 8. You have neither heard nor understood from of old. Your ears have not been open. Well, do I know how treacherous you are? You were called a rebel from birth. Earlier in verse 1, God identified the people of Israel by being called by the name of Israel. Now here in verse 8, things have changed. He sees Israel as having been called a rebel from birth. Why? Because they don't listen. Because their ears aren't open. They're not listening to what God says. They thought they knew best. Their obstinance their hard-headedness, their stubbornness was so bad that God calls them treacherous. The case that God has against Israel here is valid. His people weren't who they claimed to be. 
They worshiped in pretense only. Their hearts were hardened against the truth. They took credit for what the Lord had done. They were treacherous. In some, they thought they knew best. Now, if you listen to all this as simply a history lesson, it can be pretty interesting. It can keep our attention for a bit. But as I said earlier, my encouragement is, is that we look at this as more than just a history lesson. Because if you look at this as more than just a history lesson, as something that we should apply in our lives, it becomes more than interesting. It actually becomes pretty convicting. We have to ask ourselves, as we read this, as we go through Isaiah chapter 48, and as we see how the Israelites responded, we have to ask ourselves some pretty important questions. Could the Lord make such a case against us? Could the Lord make such a case against you? Are you truly who you claim to be? Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim to be a follower of Jesus? Now, to be clear, I use that terminology. I use different terminology because I want, I want to make sure we all understand what we're talking about here. Because there's some people who believe that if you're born in the United States, if you live in the United States, that makes you a Christian. There's others that are a bit more religious, and they think that if you go to church, that makes you a Christian. Some others think that, okay, well, maybe because my mom or my dad, because they're a Christian, that makes me a Christian. But to be clear, being born in the United States does not make you a Christian. Even going to church does not make you a Christian. Being born to a Christian mom or dad does not make you a Christian. Being a Christian, being a Christian means that you recognize that your sin has separated you from a relationship with God. Being a Christian means that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Being a Christian means that you believe that Jesus died on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could receive the free gift of salvation that he offers. Being a Christian means that you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and he is alive today. Being a Christian means, listen to this, being a Christian means that Jesus is the Lord of your life and you bow to his will. Being a Christian means that you believe that God knows better. So I have to ask you, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, are you living what you claim to be? Are you genuine? Do you come to church? Do you come to church just because that's what you've always done? Do you come to church just because your family comes to church? Or do you come to church to genuinely worship God? Are you here? Are you here because you think somehow it's going to line you up in the right, 
in the right way and God is going to kind of look on you favorably, all the while making your own choices, making your own decisions, living your life the way you want to live it? Are you really just like the Israelites? Are you stubborn? Are you hard-headed? Are you obstinate? Do you take credit for all of the good things that happen in your life? Do you think that you brought about all of the good in your life? You know what I believe? I believe that God could make a pretty good case against each one of us. So that leads us to the next question. So what does God do with the case he has made against Israel? And what does God do with the case that he could make against you and the case that he could make against me? What does God do with this? It's amazing. It is crazy what God does with this. Look at verse 9. Look what he says. Look what he does. He shows mercy. This is nuts. Look at verse 9. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. What does God do to Israel? What does God do for us? The Lord holds back. He holds back his wrath. He restrains it. The Lord chooses to demonstrate mercy. He does not cut Israel off. He does not give them what they deserve. And just the same, he doesn't cut you off. He doesn't cut me off. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Think about Israel. Think about what they've done. Time and time again, this is a people who has rejected God. Time and time again, they rejected his leadership. Leadership. Time and time again, they direct, rejected his direction. Time and time again, they decided that they knew better than God and chose their, to make their own way. But time and time again, God demonstrates mercy. And we're not so different, are we? Time and time again, we choose to make our own decisions. Time and time again, we choose to plot our own direction. Time and time again, we demonstrate that we think we know best. We really deserve wrath, but instead, God demonstrates mercy. And look what happens in his mercy. Look at verse 10. He chooses to refine and test us in the furnace of affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like such a nice place. The furnace of affliction. It sounds a bit terrifying. And I think it is meant to. The furnace of affliction is the place where if you are stubborn if you are obstinate, if you are hard-headed, God sends you to face trials and difficulties so that you will no longer be stubborn and obstinate, so you will no longer think that you know better than God. Oh, did you hear what I said? 
the furnace of affliction is the place where God takes your stubbornness and your hard-headedness and replaces it with obedience. And look what it says in verse 10. He's going to do it. This is clear. He's going to do it for his name's sake and so that he, in the end, will be praised and worshipped. This is not easy. This is a difficult message in that when we are stubborn, when we are hard-headed, when we are disobedient, God doesn't cut us off. Instead, he chooses to refine us and test us by sending us to the furnace of affliction. To the second section of 48. God is still not finished calling us to obedience. He now focuses on what could have been and what he would have provided had they only listened. So this section begins just like the first section with the Lord asking his people again, please listen to me. Look at verse 12. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Again, he addresses Israel as the people that he has called. The Lord says, describing himself, I am he. Speaking of his self-existence. And he says, I am the first and I am the last. Indicating that he's God. He starts things and he finishes things. And he says, so listen to me. Then in verses 12 through 16, God recaps the reasons why the people of Israel should listen to him and why each of us should listen to him as well. In verses 12 and 13, he states that he's the sole creator. He created you and he existed before everything and will after everything. In verses 14 and 15, he's the Lord of history. He has summoned the heavens and the stars and they obey. So clearly he can summon a Persian emperor and he will obey. No idol can do what he's done. No idol can foretell the future nor bring it to pass. Then in verse 16, he reiterates that he is the God who speaks. And if he speaks, and if it's God who speaks, surely we should listen. Now in verse 17, everything in verse 17 starts to come together. He's wrapping up chapter 48, starting in verse 17. And in a way, he's wrapping up chapters, the last eight chapters of the book of Isaiah. Look at what he says, verse 17. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Here, God identifies himself using a group of names and titles. He says, the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, and your God. And these last three, note these last three names or titles that he uses. They signify a special relationship that God has with Israel and a special relationship that God has with you if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus. Not only is he the God who speaks, but he's the God, listen please, he is the God of mercy, grace, and love. Despite Israel's resistance and rebellion, despite your and my resistance and rebellion, God is still in the redemption business. Because of his great love for us, he cares for us deeply, he cares for the choices we make and the direction our lives take, and and he cannot disregard our sin. So he makes his will known to us. 
He's the one who teaches what is best for us. He alone knows what is best for us. Although we often think we know best when really we're just like those kids in the video speaking a bunch of gibberish because we don't know what best, was best for us. But God does. He knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you and he knows what is best for me because he is God and we are not. And not only does he know what's best for us, He tells us that he is sharing with us the way that we should go. And he makes it clear. But again, Israel doesn't listen. And so often we don't listen either. And then look what he does. He says, but if you had obeyed, if only you had listened. This is verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like the numberless grains, their name would have been never been blotted out or destroyed from before me. If they had paid attention, if the people of Israel had listened, if they would have obeyed God and followed his leading, none of the tragedies of the exile would have occurred. There would have been no furnace of affliction. Instead, look what it says they would have had. They would have had peace. They would have had peace like a river, well-being like the waves of the sea. This isn't just like a little bit of peace. This isn't just like the peace in a pond. This is like peace of a river, peace that is abundant, free-flowing, continual, just keeps coming. If they had been obedient, if they had listened, they would have experienced peace. And it's the same for us. When we obey, when we listen to what God has to say, when we follow his leading, follow his direction, we experience peace. Obedience to God leads to peace. Now, it's difficult to describe peace, but there's a reason for that. It's because it's supernatural. It's super tranquility. It's super contentment. It's the lack of anxiety, the lack of fear, the lack of worry. God, when we are obedient, provides supernatural peace. It is a promise that he makes to you and a promise that he makes to me. Now, I want to be clear about something because I think we often believe something that's not true. I think we often believe, and I don't know where this comes from. I have some ideas, but I'm not quite sure where it always comes from. But what we do is we often believe that if we obey God, things are going to go well for us. If we obey God, things are going to be easy. If we obey God, then everything is going to go the way I think it should go. Things are going to be all good. I think we get that because sometimes we flip the TV channels. I do this. And we watch the preachers and the pastors on there that preach this prosperity gospel. I want you to know it's not true. Just because you obey God, it does not mean that you are going to have a better car. It does not mean that you are going to have a bigger house. It does not mean that your salary is going to increase. It does not mean that you are going to make the team. And it does not mean that you are going to have more friends. 
Obedience, the promise of obedience is peace. You see, you may obey God, and your obedience, in your obedience, you may end up having no car. You may end up living in an apartment. You may have no job. You may not make the team, and you may lose your friends. But somehow, obeying God brings a peace that is somehow better than all of those things combined. Obedience doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be easy. Obedience means that God is going to provide for you a supernatural peace and well-being in the midst of the life that you are living following his direction. Now let's jump back to the text. I got a question. Why? So this, this kind of bugged me this week. Why does the Lord tell them what could have been? Why does he tell them what could have been? Because it kind of sounds mean to me. Like, if you would have obeyed, if you would have done what I said, if you would have listened to me, then you would have gotten peace. Then things would, you would have experienced waves like, like the waves of the water, the ocean, the sea. If you would have done it, you would have had peace. It kind of sounds to me, because they didn't, right? They didn't obey. They didn't do what he said. So it kind of sounds to me like they're kicking them when, he's kicking them when they're down. Unless, unless there's still a chance for them. And because God is the God of redemption, because he is a God who demonstrates his mercy and his grace and his love, there is still a chance for them. The people have a chance to see what they have been missing and turn from their evil ways, turn from thinking they know best, and come to realize and understand that it's God who knows best. They have the opportunity for a second chance. And the promise is still there. Obedience to God leads to peace. So these verses are actually verses of encouragement and hope. And they are here because they are meant to provoke change. They're not meant to kick us when we're down. They're not meant to tell us what could have been without the opportunity for something better. They're meant to provoke change. In verse 20, becomes the instruction for the change. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God knows what's best. God knows the way they should go. And now he is telling them. God is offering them release from Babylon, from captivity, from slavery. He is commanding them to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. And if they obey, if they continue to obey, the promise of obedience, the promised blessing of obedience is peace. If they flee Babylon when the time comes, they will experience peace. He's giving them the opportunity for redemption because he wants to demonstrate his mercy to them. And because Babylon is going to be 
destroyed. We're in Isaiah chapter 48. In the previous chapter, Isaiah 47, God declares that he is going to destroy Babylon. Yes, he has used Babylon. He has used Babylon as a furnace of affliction for his people to refine them and to test them, but he recognizes that Babylon is wicked, that Babylon did not treat his people well. He recognizes that Babylon flaunts their opulence and rests in their abilities and strengths. He recognizes that Babylon turns to astrologers and casting spells. He recognizes that Babylon thinks their wickedness will go unnoticed. And God says he is going to destroy Babylon. And he instructs his people, you obey and you flee Babylon. And you know what the sad thing was? When Babylon conquered Israel, Babylon took 72,000 Israelites and brought them back to Babylon in slavery, in captivity. And they lived there for decades. And when the time came to flee, only 40,000 of them left and went back to Jerusalem. And the historian Josephus, first century Jewish historian, tells us that they did not want to leave because they did not want to leave their possessions. They had immersed themselves in the culture. They had, for lack of a better phrase, become Babylonian. And God says, no, you need to flee Babylon. You need to run from Babylon because Babylon is wicked and I am going to destroy it. God says, verse 17, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. And if you obey, you will experience peace and well-being. I don't know how to say it any stronger. The reward for obedience is peace. And then in verse 22, God tries one more time. He's offering his people one more chance. Look what he says. There is no peace for the wicked. This is a strong reminder of the blessing of peace and well-being. The fact that that blessing is contingent upon obedience. Wicked is a strong word. And here, the wicked are all of those who do not obey God all of those who think they know best. Are you living like you know best? Are you living your life like you know what's best for you? You know the direction that you need to take. You know the path you're on. Do you think that you know better than God? Do you think you know better than your heavenly Father? Are you obstinate? Hard-headed? Stubborn? Maybe you're like one of those children and you live in a household, you got a mom and dad and you think you know better than your mom and dad and you tell them 
You demonstrate disrespect. You speak against your parents. You don't obey your parents when God clearly says that you're to obey your mother and father so that it will go well for you. But in your house, you even think you know best. That's not obedience to God. Are you living your life? Are you like, man, I'm, like, I'm in college now and I just got out of my house and it was great. Man, I, yeah, like, I got to party all year long. And you got out of control. But you think you know best. You can do what you want to do. Maybe you're out of school and you took a job, you took the job that you thought was the best job for you to take. You made your choice. You didn't even give God an option to speak because you think you know best. Maybe it's been years, maybe it's been decades that you've had a goal, you've had a plan to accumulate, to be in that better house, to have that nicer car, to meet all your needs through the material. And you think you know best and you've made all those decisions. And along the way, yeah, I've come to church. Yeah, I think if I align myself with God, he's gonna kind of be there for me. But really, you're just living your life like you know best. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in the furnace of affliction. Like you're experiencing trials, difficulties, and troubles. And you're not sure why you're there. Maybe. Maybe you're there because you've been living your life like you know best. And God wants to put an end to it. God wants to refine you and test you and let you know that he knows best. I know this isn't easy. But what I do know is that there is hope. I do know that God is the God of second chances. I do know that God this morning is saying to you, if you can find yourself, if you can sit there and honestly evaluate yourself and recognize that you have been living your life like you know best, I know that God is saying to you this morning, the second chance is here and all you have to do is flee Babylon is stand up and flee Babylon. Run from Babylon. Run from that sin because Babylon is going to be destroyed. Do you understand? You and I, we are living in Babylon. We live in a world that tells us day in and day out, make your own decisions. Live your life the way you want to live your life and it will go well for you. And that is not God's message. God's message to you this morning, to me this morning, is flee Babylon and recognize that he knows what's best. So what we're going to do is this morning, we're going to sing two songs. Andy's going to come out, the praise team is going to come out, and we are going to sing two songs together. And if this has resonated with you in any way this morning, if you have been sitting there thinking, oh boy, I've been living my life like I know best. 
If you are here this morning and you are in the furnace of affliction, I will tell you the quickest way out of the furnace of affliction is to learn the lesson that God has for you and recognize that obedience leads to peace. So we're going to sing two songs. And what I would like to do is I would like to invite you to come to the front and confess. Stand up, walk to the front, and in doing so, you will be declaring that I am fleeing Babylon and I am choosing obedience because I want to experience God's promise of peace. And at the end of the two songs, I am going to get up and pray to close the service. It's time. It's time to flee Babylon. Don't wait any longer. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.